0: As you waited for the airship to arrive, the excitement was immense. Then you see it, it's huge, a giant bubble that floated across the sky. Looking in amazement, you catch a flicker of what looked like flames. The airship dipped down and pitched up. The sky changed red with anger. The immense excitement now was intense fear. The flickering flame was now a raging inferno. Screams, cries, and shouts surround you. This was the Hindenburg disaster, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. In 1936, the Hindenburg made 10 trips to the US. The 1937 season opened with a single round trip to Brazil. May 3rd it departed Frankfurt, Germany to do the first of 10 round trips between Europe and the US that was scheduled for its second year of commercial service. American Airlines made a deal with the Hindenburg to shuttle pastures from Lakehurst to Newark. Crossing the Atlantic was normal. Some headwinds slowed the travel slightly but nothing major. But three days later, May 6th While trying to land, issues would arise. The flight to Lakehurst was only half booked with 36 passengers. The return flight was fully booked with 70 passengers. Passing over Boston on the morning of May 6th, the airship was hours behind schedule. Later afternoon, thunderstorms would cause more delays for its landing at Lakehurst. Captain Max Proust was warned of the poor conditions, so he changed course over Manhattan Island. This caused a bit of a spectacle with people running out into the streets just to see the airship. Captain Proust would then swing over seaside of New Jersey, still waiting for a go-ahead regarding the weather. At 6.22pm, word came the storm had passed. Bruce would then navigate to Lakehurst to finally make its landing, nearly half a day late. With this delay allowing the usual public onboard visit once docked couldn't happen, which Bruce said word of. Around 7pm Lakehurst time, the Hindenburg made its final approach. This type of airship does a high landing called Flying Moor, This is because the airship drops landing ropes and mooring cables at high altitudes. These were to be winched down to the mooring mast. Now this type of landing meant less ground crew, but took more time to complete. It was a common American procedure, but the Hindenburg only did it a few times. At 7.09 PM, the airship made a sharp left around the landing field because ground crew weren't ready yet. It would turn back to the landing field and valved gas. Engines were put on idle and the airship started slow. At 7.15 PM, Captain Proust ordered engines full astern to try break the airship. The wind shifted at 7.17 PM, so Proust ordered another sharp turn starboard, creating an S-shaped path to the morning mass. 7.18pm the stern was heavy on the final turn so Proust ordered drops of water, ballast and successive drops. He also fouled the forward gas cells. All this failed to trim the airship. So six men, three of which died in the accident, were sent to the bow to trim the airship. 7.21pm the Hindenburg was 295 feet and dropped the morning lines from the bow and starboard, following by the port line. The port line was over-tightened. The starboard line had still not been connected. As the ground crew grabbed the morning lines, a light rain began to fall. At 7.25 PM, witnesses remarked seeing fabric fluttering as if gas was leaking. Others noted a dim blue flame just before fire broke out on top and back of the ship. Several stated the first flames appeared port side and the flames on top. Commander Rossendal described the flames were front upper fin like a mushroom shape. Witness on starboard side said the fire began lower and behind the rudder on that side. On board people heard muffled detonations. Those at the front felt a shock which officers in the control car thought was from a broken rope. Quickly after this the Hindenburg caught fire completely. Reports as to where the fire started differ hugely. Some say it was portside that jumped forward. Others say it began on the horizontal port fin. Those starboard said flames began lower and farther aft inside helmsman Lou, who was in the lower fin said he heard a detonation he then looked up to see a bright reflection on the front bulkhead of gas cell 4. with the gas cells catching fire it spread to starboard side and the ship plunged media were there to film and photo the landing but no photos or footage of the moment the fire started exists Regardless where the flame started, it spread fast to the front, consuming cells 1 to 9. Then the back of the airship imploded. Straight away, two tanks burst out of the hull from the shock of the blast. Buoyancy was lost, the bow lurched up, and the ship's back broke. As the tail hit the ground, flames came came out of the nose, killing nine crew in the bow. Gas was still in the bow, so the ship stayed up as the stern collapsed. The cell behind the passenger's deck caught fire as the sides came in. The Hindenburg's red lettering dissolved in the flames as the bow fell. The gonola wheel hit the ground, sending the bow back up. Finally, the bow crashed to the ground. The hydrogen had finished burning at this point, but the diesel burned for hours from the first sign of the issue to the bow crashing took about 37 seconds. This is all estimated from eyewitness accounts as no film exists of the beginning. NASA analyst Addison Bain gives flame front sp- speed rate across the fabric of 49 feet a second, at some points given a total destruction time of 16 seconds, but again without footage this is all speculations. The explosion of the crash was felt as far as 6 miles away, with windows shattering and dishes toppling at Tom River, New Jersey restaurant. Some of the airship's framework was salvaged and sent back to Germany. It was recycled to construct the Luftwaffe military aircraft. In the days after, a board of inquiry was set up to look at Lakehurst into the cause of the fire. The U.S. Commerce Department, headed by Colonel Seth Trimble, Jr. investigated and Hugo Eckener, headed the German commissioner. Although the start wasn't filmed, the disaster is well documented. It was huge news even before the crash. It was the first transatlantic passenger flight of the year by Zeppelin to the U.S. Because of this, huge crowds of journalists were there for the landing. Hubert Morrison was a reporter for radio station WLS Chicago and broadcasted the next day. His report is the famous verbal description of the event. Parts of his broadcast would later be dubbed over film given the impression it was done together. The news coverage was filmed by Movie Tone, Hearst News of the Day, Pate News and Paramount News. The most widely known photos of the disaster was taken by international news photos. With the footage, photos and Morrison's report, the public's confidence of the airship hit the ground and marked the end of the giant carrying airships. This was the main reason, but the airship was a dying industry with the arrival of international air travel and Pan American Airlines. Although the Hindenburg offered comfort, the others were offering quick travel. In Germany, coverage of the disaster wasn't as big of news. Some photos were published, but the footage wasn't released until after World War II. Hindenburg wasn't the first airship accident. Others happened, many due to bad weather. From the crash, 35 were dead. 13 of them passengers and 22 crew. Most of them who survived were badly burned. Alan Hagman also sadly died. He was a ground crewman and a linesman. 10 passengers and 16 crew died in the crash or fire. Sadly, most burned to death. Others died jumping from the airship, smoking inhalation, or were hit by falling debris. Six crew, three passengers and Alan Hageman died hours or days later, mostly from burns. Majority of the crewmen who died were in the ship's hull. They couldn't escape because the route was blocked or were in the bow that burned high in the air, preventing escape. Most of the passengers that died were trapped starboard side of the passenger deck. The wind blew the fire starboard side, but also, as it settled to the ground, it slightly rolled to starboard. The upper hull collapsed out, cutting off any escape for the passengers inside. To add to a bad situation, the sliding door that led from starboard passenger areas to the central foyer was jammed in the crash. Some did escape from starboard decks, Overport side was a different story. All but a few didn't survive. Some even escaped without a mark from them. The Hindenburg disaster was the best remembered, but actually wasn't the worst. 73 of 76 died in the US Navy airship USS Akron crashed at sea April 4, 1938. Werner Franz was a 14 year old cabin boy. He was trapped surrounded by fire. Only when a water tank above him burst could he escape as the water put out the flames. He was able to get to a hatch nearby and drop down just as the front part rebound slightly. He ran to starboard side but turned back because the flames were coming towards him. He would escape with no injury He died in 2014, the last surviving crew member to pass. The last surviving passenger to die was Werner G. Donor in 2019. He was eight at the time of the crash and was on holidays with his family. He remembered his mother throwing him and his brother out a window with her jumping out after them. Sadly, his father and sister died in the crash. When the control car crashed, the officers leapt out the window, becoming separated. First officer, Captain Samet, found Captain Proust trying to go back in to get survivors. Proust's face was badly burnt. He would spend months in hospital, undergoing reconstructive surgery, but he did survive. Captain Lehman escaped with bad burns to his hands, head, arms and back. He sadly died just a day later. Joseph Spa, an, af- an acrobat, was a passenger on board. When he seen the issues, he smashed the window with his movie camera and started to film the landing. As the airship neared the ground, he got out of the window and hung to the ledge. He dropped at about 20 feet above the ground. Being an acrobat, he knew how to land as safe as he could. He tucked his feet under him, tried to do a roll. He injured his ankle in the landing and was dazed. He crawled away and a ground crewman found him and took him to safety. Three of the twelve crew in the bow of the airship survived. Four of these twelve were standing on the mooring shelf, which is a platform at the very tip of the bow. Here the forward mast landing ropes and steel mooring cables were released to the ground. It was directly at the forward end of the axle walking and just in front of gas cell 16. Others were standing along the lower keel ahead of the control car or on the platform just next to the stairway that led to the curve of the bow to the mooring shelf. In the fire The bow hung up in the air and flames shot through the axle walking. This then burst through the bow. Elevator man Boyer, Cook, Granzinger and electrician Liebreck survived as they were the furthest aft of the bow. Boyer and Granzinger were standing near two large triangle air vents. Cool air was drawn in by the fire here. These two would only receive minor burns. Most standing along the bow stairway either fell into the fire or jumped when the airship was too high. Three of the other four standing on the moor shelf were removed from the wreckage alive. Rigger Eric Spell died shortly after being recovered. Helmsman Bernard and apprentice Felber survived but succumbed to injuries a day later. Hydrogen flames are less destructive than others. The buoyancy of the diatronic hydrogen causes heat combustion to release up. Hydrogen fires are also more survivable. The hydrogen in the Hindenburg burnt out in a minute and a half. So what exactly happened? Was sabotage the most common thinking put forward? Hugo Eckener was the first to put the theory up. He was the former head of the Zeppelin company. Before any inspections of the accident, Ekener mentioned about a shot being the cause as threatening letters had been sent, but this didn't rule out other causes. Ekener would come to change his thinking back in the static spark theory. At the time of the incident, Ekener was in Austria on tour a phone call came at about 2.30 in the morning. It was a Berlin representative for the New York Times who told him about the Hindenburg explosion. Later, at a more reasonable morning hour, Eckner was leaving for Beli- Berlin to be briefed when he was met with reporters outside looking for answers. Going on the explosion story he received, Eckner suggested sabotage as possible. But when he learned the airship burned and not exploded, he, becaf- he was convinced static discharge was the cause and not sabotage. Charles Rosendahl, commander of the Naval Air Station, was in charge of the ground-based portion of the landing. He would believe in the sabotage hypothesis. Captain Proust also leaned towards the ha- sabotage hypothesis. In 1960, Proust gave an interview. He spoke about South America being a popular trip and how often dared the airship pass through thunderstorms. Even being hit by lightning, the airship would be unharmed, which led him to believe the Hindenburg was indeed sabotage. Most of the crew couldn't and wouldn't believe one of their own would sabotage, insisting if it was done, it was done by a passenger. Rosendahl, Proust and some crew suspected it was the German acrobat Joseph Spa. Joseph brought a dog with him and made many solo trips to feed the dog who was in the freight room by the stern. Those who suspected him based off these frequent visits to feed the dog. He also seemed anxious, being on edge, especially with the delay. It was also taught being an acrobat climbing objects like airship rigging would come easy to him and would be a great place to plant a bomb. In 1962, Who Destroyed the Hindenburg was published by A. A. Holing. In the book he threw out all theories except sabotage. He named crew member Eric Spell, the rigger who died in the fire, as a suspect of sabotage in 1972, The Hindenburg by Michael Macdonald Mooney came out. This book would be made into a film, mainly fictional, of the last flight called The Hindenburg in 1975. The producers of the film would be sued by Holin, who argued plagiarism. The case didn't amount to anything, being dismissed because the sabotage hypothesis was presented as a historic fact and you can't claim ownership of a historical fact. Looking into Holland's theory about Spell as the saboteur, you have his girlfriend. She had communist beliefs and anti-Nazi connections. Bear in mind, although the Hindenburg was developed before the Nazis took power, its first flight was a Nazi propaganda mission and members of the Nazis would see the Hindenburg as symbol of Germany's power, strength, even a trailblazer in the aviation tech. Then you have the fire which started near the catwalk through gas cell four. The area was off limits to all but a few. One of the few was Spell. Hoyland also claimed chief steward Cubis told him of being informed about damage to cell four prior to the disaster. There's rumours the Gestapo looked into Spell in 1938 but nothing seems to have come from it. Now in his free time Spell found interest in photography. This had him understanding of flashbulbs, which could be an igniter. NYPD bomb squad searched after disaster and found a substance which they thought could be insoluble Insoluble soluble residue, possibly from an element of a dry battery. Hoyland stretched his theory, although still possible, that a battery to power a flash bulb could have been this dry battery. The FBI found a substance yellow in appearance on the valve cap between cells 4 and 5 where the fire was thought to have started. At first it was thought to be sulphur which ignites hydrogen and to link to spell it is used to develop prints. But later, with more testing, the residue was found to be from a fire extinguisher. There was also accounts of a flash or bright reflection in gas cell four. Witnesses just before the fire, which could have been the ignition. In both Hoyland and Mooney's theory of sabotage, they do say if it was spell, He most likely didn't want to kill anyone. He probably wanted just to damage or destroy the airship after landing, but because of the delay, he was probably unable to change the course of events. Like a timer, he couldn't alter. Hoyland's sabotage theory has been dismissed by many as there isn't enough solid evidence to the claim. No bomb pieces were ever recovered The cell battery thinking found no residue near the stern. The girlfriend claims were very weak. With such holes, Hoyland would lean on a short circuit theory being a potential cause. Mooney's book didn't go well, and it was seen as more of a setup for the 1975 film rather than being factual. Mooney would allege officers were there investigating But again, there's no evidence to support this. Those against the sabotage theory argued the only thing supporting supporting it was all speculations. Spell died in the fire so he couldn't give his side. Spad, the acrobat, was investigated and ruled out with no connections. Both German and American investigators never backed the sabotage. Those who believe the sabotage theory believe evidence was found, but hidden for political reasons. The the crew agreed with the sabotage theory in a passenger possibility, but this was probably to avoid accepting fault, flaws with the airship or pilot error. Newspapers, they wanted sales, and sales come from eye-catching headlines which is the direction they went in suggesting a Luger pistol was recovered from the wreck with one round fired. The newspapers went on to speculate someone on board tried to commit suicide or shot the airship. No evidence of this pistol was found or a person with a gunshot was neither found. Hugo Eckner would say a shot could have been possible linking to the letters of threat before the disaster but later he discounted this as a cause so hugo eckner changed his theory this time arguing that fire started by electrical spark causing a build-up of static electricity the spark ignited hydrogen on the outer skin the static spark hypothesis points out the skin wasn't constructed to allow the charge to distribute evenly throughout the aircraft. The skin was separated from the frame by a non-conductive Rami cords, which were lightly covered in metal to help with conductivity, but it wasn't great. Instead of distributing, it allowed the difference to form between the skin and the frame. To make up the time loss, the Hindenburg passed through a weather front of high pressure and high electrical charge. The morning lines were not wet when the aircraft hit the ground first, and ignition was four minutes later. But Eckner thinks the lines became wet within these four minutes. When the ropes connected to the frame, it then became wet itself. The frame would be grounded, but not the skin. The sudden difference in skin and frame would set an electrical discharge or spark. The spark would look for the quickest way to ground, so it would jump from skin to metal frame igniting the leaking hydrogen. This theory is high up on the cause, but such a discharge would have been seen, yet no witnesses reported it at the 1937 accidental investigation. Echinour thought a snapped brace and wire caused a tear in the gas cell, creating an opening. Others thought the automatic gas valve was stuck open and gas leaked. In the first trip to Brazil, the gas cell was nearly emptied when the automatic valve was stuck open. Gas had to be moved from other cells to maintain it even. On its final approach, there was no indication of such a problem. Some argued if a leak did happen, the passenger's crew would have smelt it. The claim would say the hydrogen was odorized with garlic, but if this was true, the smell would have only been smelt in the area of the leak, which was a restricted area. Also, once the fire hit, more powerful odours would have masked the garlic smell no one reported smelling garlic and no documents confirmed that the hydrogen was even odorized. hydrogen burns blue but reports claim a bright red now other materials did burn in the fire so this could have changed the colour lightning was suggested as another theory the airship vents when landing airship fires have been seen when lightning hits as the airship vents and the bird was venting at the time of the disaster. But no witness seen any lightning as the ship was making its final approach. Engine failure is another theory. This came from a ground crewman, Buckman, who was manning the mooring lines. As the airship approached the mooring mass, he noted one of the engines backfired with sparks coming from it. He believed the outer skin ignited from these sparks. Robert Shaw, another ground crewman, also noted seeing these sparks. He also saw a blue ring behind the tail fin, which he thought was leaking hydrogen, and it ignited with the sparks. Eckner said this wasn't possible. Exhaust temps are too low to ignite hydrogen. Ignition temp of hydrogen is 500 deg- degrees celsius. Sparks from the exhaust would have only reached 250 degrees celsius. Also, the first sight of fire was at the top of the airship and not the bottom of the hull. In 1996, incendiary paint theory was suggested by retired NASA Addison Bain. He said the doping compound of the airship caused the fire. It's believed IPT was the major compound in starting the fire and feeding the spread as the Mm. compound was on the skin. The argument for this was the fabric had iron oxide and aluminium. Both can be used as compounds of solid rocket fuel. To try explain, the propellant for a space shuttle solid rocket booster has aluminium fuel of 16% and iron oxide, a catalyst of 0.4%. The coating on the Hindenburg didn't have sufficient quantity capable to act as an oxidizer, a requirement of rocket fuel, but what was in the air, oxygen and plenty of it. Bain got permission to look deeper into the archives. He interviewed the wife of lead investigator, Mike, Max Deichmann. Before he got talking to her, Bain found the German scientists at the time of the disaster concluded the dope on the fabric was the cause. Dykman's wife told Bain her husband concluded the same, but she was never repeated as the findings was a bit of an embarrassment. Officially, Dykman concluded poor conductivity led to the ignition of hydrogen. Otto Byerstoff was hired in, as an independently by Zeppelin and he'd find the outer skin was flammable. Bain would demonstrate on tv shows the flammability of the fabric mm. but these were criticized for being too controlled. The fabric was in a particular position and the electric current wasn't at, like atmospheric conditions. How IPT theory works it needs to spark that parallels to the surface then panel to panel arching happens as the spark moves between the panels of paint. But astrophysicist Desler would say a static spark does not have the energy to ignite the doping compound and the doping compound would prevent a parallel spark as was suggested. Desler would add the skin was electric conductive in the wet conditions before the fire. Critics also pointed out witnesses portside and crew in the stern all accounted seeing a glow inside cell 4 before the fire broke out of the skin. This suggested it began inside or hydrogen ignited. News footage would clearly show fire burning inside before coming outside. Those who who supported the pain theory say the glow seen was the fire igniting starburn. At least two witnesses confirmed this. Bain used these two witness statements to conclude the fire began rear cell one behind the tail fin spreading forward and this is then seen port side. But photos of the early stage of the fire show gas cells of the aft section fully engulfed englo- with no glow where fabric was still intact. Burning gas upwards caused low pressure inside, so the skin came inwards. The show mythbusters delved into the paint idea. Their findings showed that while aluminium and iron oxide are flammable, there wasn't enough to destroy the Hindenburg. If the skin had enough of both, then termite would have been created, and if that happened, the airship would have not flown due to the weight. They also found the coated part had a higher ignition temp than the untreated materials, so it would have burned slower and the accelerator indicated a termite reaction. They concluded the paint may have been a contributor, but not the sole cause. Hugo Eckner would question the airship's structural integrity. The airship wasn't routinely inspected, and evidence showed some damage on previous flights. Because of no inspections, it's not known if the damage was ever fixed. From Rio, the ship lost an engine and drifted over Africa. This could have led to a crash, so Eckner ordered chiefs to conduct checks while flying. But the complexity and huge uh, size of the airship made it pretty much impossible to find all weaknesses. March 1936, the Hindenburg was chosen to do a three-day flight dropping leaflets and broadcasting speeches. Now before takeoff on March 26th, Ernest Leigham launched the Hindenburg with the wind blowing behind, rather than launching into the wind, which was the usual. As it took off, the tail hit the ground and part of the lower fin was broken. It was fixed, but the force of the hit is thought to have rippled into the ship, causing internal damage. Six days before the disaster, the Hindenburg had a hook installed to the hull to carry small aircraft. Trials were terrible, with a hook plane, usually a biplane, hitting the Hindenburgs trapeze many times. From this, the structure may have been damaged. Footage and map approaches show the Hindenburg completed many sharp turns just before the disaster. The thinking is these turns might have weakened the structure, especially near the vertical fins. This is thought to have snapped a bracing wire and punctured a gas cell. This theory would be called the puncture hypothesis. The bracing wires weren't great. Tests after the crash showed they broke at 70% of its rated load. A punctured cell would leak hydrogen into the air and this could have been ignited by a static charge, if strong enough. But if the bracing wires snapped and hit a gir- girder, it could be sparked and also ignited the hydrogen. Inside witnesses said about a muffled detonation sound. And outside witnesses said about a crack sound. Both of which could have been the snap of the brazen wire or hit of the girder. Eckner said the poke theory, with pilot error was likely to explain the disaster. Eckner pointed blame at Proust, Lehman, and Rosendahl. As to him, the landing procedure was rushed, with the airship badly out of trim in poor weather conditions. Proust made the sharp turns, Lehman pressured this to be done, and Rossendahl called the airship in for landing. Eckner noted another small storm was coming after the thunderstorm created conditions for a static spark. In the U.S. inquiry, Eckener said he believed the fire was caused by a static spark igniting the hydrogen. There are so many theories as to what happened. All are possible and all can be explained away. A question does remain, what caused such a rapid spread of the fire, the entire length of the airship, which is 804 feet? or three Boeing 747s within seconds. Debates arose again, centering on the fabric covering and the hydrogen used for buoyancy. Those were the paint and hydrogen theories, both agreed the fabric coating was probably responsible for the rapid spread of the fire. The combustion of hydrogen isn't usually visible to the human eye. Its radiation is seen in ultraviolet, so what's burning in the photos can't be hydrogen. But black and white at the time had a different light sensitivity than human eyes. Hydrogen burns invisible, but materials around it, if combustible, would change the colour of the fire. The film footage shows the fire spreading down along the airship skin. The radiant heat was huge from the blaze and would quickly spread the fire out the entire surface, which led to an explanation of downward propagation of the flames. Debris that fell and burned also appeared as downward streaks of fire. There are those skeptical of the incendiary paint theory. They claim even if coated with actual rocket fuel, it would take hours to burn not under a minute like it had modern experiments would conclude it would take 40 hours to burn if the fire was driven by combustible fabric the most conclusive against it is in the photos of the accident and of other airships not doped with aluminium they still burned fast and violently exploded when one gas cell explodes it creates a shock wave and heat The shock wave usually rips nearby bags or bags then they explode. Photos of the Hindenburg clearly show after the cells exploded and the combustion products vented out the top. The fabric at the rear was still intact and air pressure outside was acting upon it, caving the sides in because of the reduction of pressure caused by the venting of combustion gases at the top. But all of these are theories. What is for certain is a sad, terrible accident happened. Exactly what or even who caused it may never be absolutely known. What did come from the accident was an end to the airship era. People became uncomfortable, scared, and concerned about airships. American and German companies had big plans to build more airships and saw the Hindenburg as a test case for the new investment. But from the cash, these plans were all scrapped. Advancement in aviation technology came after the crash. This was covered even before the crash. These new advancements included quicker flight times, which would have ended the airship popularity within years, regardless of the horrific disaster. Sadly, it didn't come in time to avoid the disaster. Thank you all for listening. Next time, I'll be looking at Josef Mingle, also known as the Angel of Death. He is known for his actions at Icewich, performing deadly experiments on prisoners, selecting those for the gas chambers, and administrating the gas himself. Until then, this was the good the bad and the pure evil.